couple weeks ago, we uh, started a series by looking at uh, the second part of the book of Acts. And it's called On Mission. And as followers of Jesus, I believe that we are called to live on mission with God. It's very easy um, for me, and I'm sure it's the same for you, to get distracted and simply just live my life based on the circumstances that are before me and the situations and people that interrupt me rather than intentionally and strategically partnering with God and living on mission for Him. Because I believe there's this great cosmic mission that He's looking to accomplish. And today, God is inviting, inviting you to join His mission to save the world. The book of Acts, as I said, has been serving as our handle um, as we study this idea. And we're calling the series On Mission and tracing the journey of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke as they go on what's called this, uh, Paul's second and even we're going to look at his third missionary journeys. Two weeks ago, we um, started in the book of uh, Acts chapter 16 as these men received um, an invitation, really a vision of a man saying, come over to Macedonia. The guys had a plan of where they wanted to go and where they thought God would use them. But sometimes, as Steve was talking about, the river just starts to overflow. And the wind just starts to blow and you can't control it. And they see that God is calling them to go somewhere new, to Macedonia. And um, last week, we stepped away just to really understand who Paul is. To look at his life, how he became the man, the missionary that we're studying in this passage. But this morning, we're going to pick up where we had left off in Acts 16. And right there in verse 11 is where I'll be reading from in just a minute. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are in Troas. This is a uh, harbor town um, on the Aegean Sea, and they are about to depart from Macedonia. So this is, they're about to sail across the sea to Macedonia, where the Holy Spirit is calling these men to go. And they ultimately end up in the city of Philippi, where they will stay and begin planting a church. Of course, we're most familiar with Philippi because of the letter in the Bible to the church at Philippi, Philippians. And what this passage is going to show us is that Paul and his friends advance God's kingdom in Philippi really through words and through deeds. So I'm going to read to you Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. 
She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. You know, it only takes us eight verses to realize Paul and his companions were successful to advance the kingdom of God here in Philippi. And you know, as you read through Acts, there are whispers all through this book of you can too. Because a lot of times we read this and we think these are heroes. These are larger than life men and women who did just great feats that I could never do. But what we realize is these were regular men and women who simply opened their lives to the moving of the Holy Spirit and God used them to, uh, to accomplish great things. So I would propose to you today that as believers in Jesus Christ, when we read Acts, we're reading our own heritage. This is what we're reading. And the baton is being passed to us as we run this great race to fulfill the Great Commission. And the question is, will we take the baton? And will we in our own generation live on mission and advance his great cause here? So how would we do that? Was we study this passage as followers of Jesus Christ who have been commissioned to go and make disciples, my hope is that we would grasp the idea that living on mission means I share the gospel through words and deeds. So we're going to begin by looking at how the missionaries shared the gospel through words. This passage, uh, passage opens with a travelogue. And, uh, you know, there are certain places in the scripture where you're tempted to just want to skip over. You're like, I don't know what that means. Why does it name so many people and name all these places that I can't even say? And, so that's, and that's kind of what's happened here. Verse 11 and 12, we read this um, kind of this travelogue. Now, Luke is our author here. He's our writer. Uh, moved by the Holy Spirit to do this, and he's a physician, and he's very attentive to detail. So as readers, it's interesting for us, because we can track where did they go? How did they get there? We can even study history and discover what was happening when they were in this place and what was going on at this time. In fact, on your bulletins on the cover, there's this map that you can follow along, because we have been able to trace the journey of where they go from one stop to the next. And what these details do is reinforce to us the validity of the New Testament. We're not reading some fairy tale about people that went on a journey to a fantasy land. These are real men and women in real places at a real time in, in, in actual situations that we can go back to. And we can look and we can research and we can discover. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they leave Troas. This is located in um, modern Turkey. Um, and so they sail net northwest across the Aegean Sea, and they have this island, Samothrace, that is uh, a mountainous island, okay? And so uh, some of the peaks reach as high as 5,500 feet. So if you're sailing, this is a great landmark, right? So you can see where you need to go, you can head straight for it. And so what we know is they're able to do that in a day. And they go to the north side of it, drop anchor, spend the night. Next morning, they head off and finish the 156-mile journey across the sea and land at Neapolis, which is a uh, harbor city in the area known as Macedonia. And so they land there, and then these four men start journeying, and they travel down a road you can actually see the ruins of today, the Via Ignatia. So as the Romans took over the world, 
they had to be able to get their soldiers to different places. And so they had these great roads built, because all roads lead to Rome, right? So they had these great roads. The Via Ignatia is the one that's right there from Neapolis. That'll 10-mile journey will take you to Philippi, and that's where they land is Philippi. Telling you much more than you need to know. But I feel like someday you may end up on, uh, on Jeopardy or on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And you'll feel like you need to tithe on it because you learned right here. But Philippi is named for a man, Philip II of Macedon. There's no reason why you should know him, but you should know his son, Alexander the Great. That's why Philippi carries the name. And in 42 B.C., there's this great battle there. And it's some names that you're familiar with. It's fought right there in that region. Um, on one side, you have Mark Antony and Octavian. And they are fighting against the two co-conspirators against Julius Caesar, Cassius and Brutus. Okay, and so in the end, Mark Antony and Octavian win. Octavian decides to get rid of Mark Antony, and he becomes Caesar Augustus, and that leads us right up to the beginning of Luke, his first thing, in the days of Caesar Augustus, right? So because they won this battle there, they decided probably one of the reasons they, uh, 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 once they won this battle, they made Philippi a Roman colony. And a lot of the veterans of that war would settle right there in Philippi. So to be a Roman colony, it came with all kinds of certain rights that made it a kind of a special, dignified city, had certain rights, certain privileges. People there, born there, had certain rights and privileges. But it had another purpose. Um, a Roman colony um, existed for the purpose of advancing the Roman way of life. That's what they were supposed to do. So Rome is way over here in Italy. And so now Philippi up here in modern-day Greece, and we need a little outpost of Rome somewhere over here. And so they have this Roman colony. And the goal is what is important to Rome needs to be important in Philippi. What we, what we say is the right way to live it needs to be the right way to live in Philippi as well. So in some ways, preaching in Philippi was like preaching in Rome. Now, it was a leading city. And with regards to tracking the advance of the gospel... It's really significant in a, for a whole other reason. Philippi is in modern-day Greece, which means the gospel has finally officially made it to Europe. It was not in Europe before, and now it's there in Europe, about to be proclaimed. And when you think about the role that Europe has played in Christian history, you go over there and you see these great cathedrals and churches. Uh, you read these books of these um, amazing men of faith from Europe. It traces right back to Philippi whenever all of a sudden these men land there and preach the gospel on this new continent. So they arrive there, and now the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which gives us hope of salvation, and uh, salvation for the nations is about to be proclaimed in words on the continent of Europe. And so I want us to look at how it unfolds. Uh, verse 13 says, And on the Sabbath day <clears throat> we went out uh, the gate, outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there will be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. John Polehill is a commentator. And he writes, Paul's usual pattern was to seek out the Jewish place of worship first. In other words, where can we go where somebody might listen to us, might think you've got something worth sharing? Well, people that we have something in common with. We'll go meet with those who are of the Jewish faith, who already know the language that we're speaking, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of the details that we might refer to. And so they went, he knew where they would probably gather on the Sabbath, outside the city, down near water, 
And so he went there, but there was no synagogue. Um, because probably there were not enough Jewish men in Philippi to establish a synagogue. So instead he discovers these women there, and uh, they were gathered to pray, pray. He sat down and began speaking to the women. Now this is the posture a rabbi would take in a synagogue, is to sit down and teach. And that's essentially what he does. And he uses words to proclaim the gospel to these women. Now one explanation for the lack of Jews uh, might be, we don't know this, but it might be um, that in, in 49 A.D., Claudius got rid of all the Jews in Rome. He made them leave. Well, 49 A.D. is about the exact moment that Paul is in Philippi. So perhaps they expelled the Jews there at the same time for the same reason. And so th that, that's what's happening. But I want you to get the full picture here, okay? I'm tracking towards something I feel like is really important for us to understand. The institution of power... And honor is the Roman Empire. And so Paul and his companions march into Philippi, and in a spiritual way, they are bringing the kingdom of God to bear against the Roman way of life. They are on the offensive at this moment. So he's crossed over the Aegean Sea, and for all intents and purposes, Paul is in enemy territory. Europe is a stronghold for the enemy, for Satan, at this time in history. And Paul wants to establish a little outpost of heaven right here in enemy territory. So what's the best way to do that? Well, militarily speaking, it would be to establish a beachhead or a bridgehead. And so um, <clears throat> that would be a, the strategic place where they could actually attack in spiritual terms. In World War II, as US, uh, the U.S. Army and the Allied troops are advancing on Germany. They've, the war is coming to a close. They're in Germany. They're trying to get to the heart of it. The American army <clears throat> is traveling through Germany, and they're surprised whenever they happen upon uh, the Ludendorff Bridge, which crossed the Rhine, and it's still intact. And they're so surprised that this has happened, but it's a strategic move for them to say, let's take the bridge. So they take the bridge, and we know that they were able to get across about 24 or 25,000 troops. And they also got tanks and trucks and the artillery to support them. They got across the bridge before the Nazis were able to blow up the bridge. But now, inside of enemy territory, they have this strategic place where they can start to attack. And we know that it was a critical move because uh, it, it shortened the war. About 60 days later, uh, they declare a victory in Europe. So a critical move because they had this strategic position within enemy territory. Well, Paul's move in Philippi is essentially establishing a bridgehead or a beachhead for the kingdom of God with this little outpost of heaven that he's going to establish in Philippi, this leading city in Macedonia on this new continent in enemy territory. That's what's happening. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia. Now, whenever they had the vision, it was a man who appeared to him and said, come over to Macedonia. But now we find out it's a woman who's the first one who will receive the gospel. Lydia, she's from the city of Thyatira, a seller of perfect purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. So she is a woman of means. Luke wants us to know that this woman is wealthy. Now we don't know if she's a widow. We don't know what the circumstances are. But she's selling fabric that are, that's worth a lot of money. And so she's a woman of means. And that's who's sitting there speaking. She's a Gentile. Now, she probably converted before she came to Philippi, but here she is in Philippi meeting with these Jewish women to worship who she believed to be the one true God. 
and she's listening is what the scripture says. And Paul begins to communicate the gospel in words, but who is the real evangelist here? It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. It was the Holy Spirit. We discover the Holy Spirit is the one who opened Lydia's heart. So in other words, it wasn't Paul's good communication skills. A lot of times that's what we say. I don't know what I'd say, you know. It wasn't um, Paul's creativity. Because we say, I don't know, we got to come up with a different tactic. That did not reach Lydia. What happened? The Holy Spirit opens her heart. We see what happens whenever uh, human initiative, so Paul preaching and her listening, all of a sudden comes together with the divine quickening, the Holy Spirit working in her heart. And by God's grace, Lydia responds. Well, what does she do when she comes to faith? She starts telling people. How do we know? Her whole household is baptized. So they respond. Now, some people will say, well, that's probably because she was the head of household, and so they all just followed. Acts tells us, it shows us over and over again, baptism is for people who uh, have made a profession of faith. These are for believers. So it must have been that she starts communicating the gospel to her friends are saying, you've got to come, you've got to hear. And they're all baptized um, as believers. And then she invites the missionaries to come into her house. And she says, y- y'all are going to be here for a while. You can just stay here. Let me, let me make rooms for you. Because she's wealthy. She's got lo- enough space. William Larkin writes, Lydia's practice of hospitality demonstrates once again that those who experience the saving grace of God become gracious. When God comes into your heart, there's a change that takes place. When all of a sudden you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit to move, then you become gracious. Where maybe you used to, you would hoard. You become generous when you used to hold tightly. You become kind-hearted or encouraging where used to you had the scowl. That's what happens when the God comes into your life. I want you to notice Paul's actions here. He didn't plan some special service. He didn't say, okay, guys. Let's go throw together a big event right down there in the, near the river. We'll pass out flyers. We'll have them wear sandwich boards. We'll send out the, uh, you know, the people that would go out and call and, our, and tell people to come and see. He didn't do that. He didn't go to the street corner and pull out a soapbox and stand up on it and start preaching. Now, there's a place for those things. There's a place for a strategic event with strategic invitations uh, to, for people to come and see. Dare I say there's even, uh, there's even uh, opportunity or there's good or there's a use for those who would stand on street corners and preach. But in this moment, Paul went to where the women would be. Rather than saying, come and see, or waiting until they came and see, he went and did. He went and engaged with them there. He sat down with them. He looked them in the eyes. He shared with them probably in a personal way. He shared the gospel with words. It is so important that you and I learn to share share the gospel. And it's because it is not intuitive. People don't just all of a sudden say, oh, that's why that cross is up there. Oh, so Jesus is the way. They have to hear it. It has to be explained to them. Now, the Holy Spirit has to be working, but that's what happens. It comes together. So they don't know this way to salvation without being told. In fact, Later on, Paul writes these words in Romans 10. He says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? 
And how will they hear without a preacher? How's it going to happen? Somebody's got to communicate it. That's what's going to happen. So here's the gospel. Jesus has come. His life, his death, his burial and resurrection give you and I the hope of salvation and life beyond the grave. That's the good news. And you can tell it to anybody you meet. So if we, you and I, are going to abide by these words, we must first see our life as own mission. That God has placed us here for a reason. Now there are plenty of uh, things and problems to fill your time with and to get distracted by. But as children of God, we're called to live strategically on mission. We live on mission by intentionally interacting with people who are far from God. We don't wait till they come to us. We go to them. It's an it's a, a offensive movement here. Um, I remember the first time I articulated the gospel to somebody. Um, I was a teenager, and I was here in Columbia on a, like a day mission project. And uh, we were at a housing project, and I sat down. We, we, we taught a Bible story, had a Bible club, and at the end of it, I sat down with this little boy, and I took out that wordless book. Y'all seen that before, right? It's the book that has no pictures and no words, but it's kind of got colors, green and gold and uh, the dark page, the clean page and the red page. And I walked that through him. I was nervous as I'll get out, but I made sure I got every word right. And at the end, this little boy prayed to become a child of God. I don't know where he is today, but I remember that um, as just a, a critical moment. There are so many tools to help you to be able to communicate the gospel. This week, I downloaded an app for my phone. It's called Life Conversation Guide. You can find it on the App Store, Life Conversation Guide. And it uses a tool called the Three Circles to be able to communicate the faith to somebody. It'll show you how to teach it, but then you can flip it around and you can show somebody. And you, you can, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. In fact, I used it this past Thursday. Sat down with somebody in a bookstore and um, thrilled to tell you that this, this person made a decision to follow Christ. And you can do this. There's, it's, it's not a, a miraculous thing. Well, it is, but it's not that I'm something special. It's I used a simple tool, and God blessed it. Well, we have all kinds of ways for you to get involved so that you can be sharing the gospel with words. And I'll tell you one of my favorite ways. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've been involved with our Good News Club here at First Baptist. Um, every spring and fall, for about six weeks, we have volunteers that go to Metafield Elementary. And they host a good news club there. So kids come in, they get to play games, uh, sing songs, have fun. Then they hear a Bible story, a memory verse, a missionary story. And they're given the opportunity to respond to the gospel. And I would say I have probably prayed with 15 or 20 children there in that good news club. And uh, you know what? It's an opportunity for you to serve. There's all kinds of other places where you can connect so that you can be doing this um, on, in a strategic way. So living on mission means I share the gospel with words. And it's critical that we do this with words. But as we bring God's values to bear in this world system, we also share the gospel with deeds. In verse 16, it says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, so that same place down by the river outside the city, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Um, so this four missionaries, they're headed back to this place, the slave, this young girl is following him, and she's trapped spiritually. So there's some sort of demonic activity going on. But she's also being trapped economically. She's being exploited. In our day and age, we call it human trafficking. I hear it goes on in spades, even in our own community. People being trapped and um, uh, sexually exploited and uh, for other purposes in our own community. It's a terrible blight on the world. 
And it's here in our generation. We always said we'll never let it happen on our time, and it's happening. The church needs to stand up against sexual exploitation and human trafficking of all kinds whenever we can. But the girl is under spiritual attack. Um, she, the, the Greek word um, that's used to describe her says she, uh, it's the word python, which of course we know to be the snakes that we run from. But this term was used to de- describe someone who had um, the ability to tell a fortune or something like that. Um, so a lot of times pagan generals would go to those who had this Pythian spirit to find out, am I going to come back alive? You know, was kind of the idea. So this was a real spectacle. This girl is following them around, and she keeps yelling out, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And some of you are thinking, well, that's a good thing, right? Somebody's out there yelling, how are you going to gather a crowd, you know? If you don't have Steve to plan a service there, it's like, we'll get her. She can follow around, you know, and she just starts shouting. But the problem is it was really misleading because to the audience there, they heard Most High God, and they thought it could mean that these are followers of Zeus because that's who they would, might have understood that to be. So we know it was demonic activity. So it's a very strange scene. She, keeps speak, um, she may have been speaking the truth, but it was because of demonic activity. She kept on doing it. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. Then you find out Paul is just like you. But Paul was greatly annoyed. <laughs> you know the feeling, right? When you're like, would you just please be quiet, you know? Or uh, get away from me, kid. You bother me. It's kind of the idea. So that's what's happening here. And all of a sudden he turns to her and, and says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Acts opens with a declaration uh, that says that Jesus says to his followers, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. As the kingdom began to advance, the enemy began to oppose. And we know that in Acts 5, that they preach the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea, and they also end up casting out a demon there in verse 16. In Samaria, same thing, cast out a demon in Acts 8, 7. And now uttermost parts of the world cast out a demon. The enemy attacks as the church advances. And so here it's happening as this bridgehead is established in Europe. Um, Jesus, you will notice, has authority over everything. His name had the power to bring freedom to this young lady. Now, we don't know if she responded to the gospel, but we do know she needed freedom. And that we know that the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And she found liberty that day. Well, living on mission means that I share the gospel with words, but this slave girl also needed the good news in the form of a good deed. Living on mission means I serve, I give, I go, I do. It's all of a sudden my actions get ahead of my words like we were singing. They outweigh my songs. That's the idea. So our faith must be put into action. I'll tell you, the person who models this best for me in my life, I get a front row view of it, is my wife, Rachel. Rachel is always, every single time, willing to drop anything to help somebody who has a need because of what God has done for her. It's it's a never-ending story for her. Every single day she wakes up with a to-do list, and we're going to get all kinds of things done, and then somebody walks into her life, and at the end there's an incredible story of how God has used her in just a special way because she lives on mission. Well, how do you live on mission? By sharing the gospel through deeds. I believe it is whenever we express redemptive loving kindness to those in need. 
Today we talk about random acts of kindness. As Christians, we need to take hold of strategic acts of kindness. That's what we need to do. In uh, Matthew 25, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then he says in verse 4, Truly, I will say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. There are all kinds of opportunities for you to share the gospel through deeds. Even here at our own church. Um, every month on the third uh, Saturday, third Saturday, right? Ron and a great team of volunteers uh, feed the homeless, the hungry, in our parking lot. And I've noticed that they, Ron doesn't just uh, get out there to serve. He knows these people. And he keeps up with them. And he cares about them. And they know he does this because of what Jesus has done for him. There's all kinds of other ministries where you can latch on. You can find opportunity to serve and share the gospel with deeds. Here's the bottom line of it. Following Jesus should be more than just lip service. It is a lifestyle. We are to live on mission. Now, it's not always glamorous. You know, we live in a day and age where we like to take a picture of us serving, put it on uh, Instagram and say, see how good I am. Um, it, that's what we like to do. But Paul suffered for living on mission. Next week, we're going to look at that, of what happened because of his good deed. He's going to suffer for it. But as a, a church, I want you to know that we are moving into a period of time where you're going to be given more and more opportunities to live your faith. And some of those opportunities will be local ministry. There will be strategic mission trips and church planning ventures. There will be global coordination for the advance of God's kingdom and even engaging with unreached people groups. But I think that it's critical that we recognize the need for, our, for the gospel in our own community. Did you know there are 3.6 million people in the state of South Carolina who are not connected to a church? 3.6 million. That's our backyard. Well, if you're a Christ follower, I want to challenge you to be prepared to share the gospel with words. We can help you do that. Second, I want to challenge you to find a place to serve. God's waiting for you to say yes to living on mission with him. Will you do that today? Our Father and God, we thank you so much that we don't just have words to read and think that's a great story, but we have truths to live by, and we have you, Holy Spirit, at work in our lives and in our world right now. And so we pray that you would help us to live for you. Now as we come to this time of decision, we pray that you would speak and that we would move. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we come to an invitation, some of you have never responded to the gospel, and today's the day. Some of you need to join the church. Maybe there's another commitment you need to make. I'm going to be waiting down front. If God's working in your heart, would you come? Let me invite you to stand. As our choir sings, you respond.
real quick, but just 